Wonderful to be with you tonight, and uh, just want to honor my classmate, Father Moriarty. We were ordained together in the same year, 1999. Uh, he reminded me, because my last name's Becker, I was ordained in front of him. <laughs> but uh, I just admire everywhere he goes, uh, the faith is lifted up, families are lifted up. Uh, I was next to him uh, when he was in Rogers and I was in St. Michael. And he brought a lot of healing there and inspiration. So Father Moriarty, a good, great gift to the diocese, to the church. Well, uh, yeah, I have the privilege of uh, hopefully giving you some inspiring material tonight on St. Joseph. And I would say that, you know, the, the church's theology develops because it's living. Our tradition is called the living tradition. There's development. And one of the things that is developing is the place that St. Joseph has in the church as universal patron, as personal patron for you, even in the liturgies. So, for example, uh, I mean, it was Pope Pius IX who declared Joseph patron in the universal church. And it was Pope John XXIII who had Joseph's name inserted into Eucharistic prayer number one, the Roman canon. How many of you knew that? I'm curious, anybody knew that? Okay, so St. Joseph was inserted into the Roman canon, Eucharistic prayer number one, just at uh, roughly Vatican II. And then uh, the last thing that Pope Benedict did on his way out, retiring, he asked uh, Pope Francis if he would put Joseph's name in the other three Eucharistic prayers most prominent, numbers two, three, and four. And so think about that. I mean, we're in 2021, and Joseph, as patron, his name went into all four Eucharistic prayers in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. He's uh, appeared in a number of the apparitions of Our Lady, too. So if you go back and read in the annals of history about Knock, St. Joseph appeared there with Mary. If you read about um, Fatima, there was actually, before the sun danced, Joseph appeared there. And Joseph appeared in Zaytun in Egypt, 1968. Again, often like with Mary, but, uh, or the Christ child, holding the Christ child. But it's interesting, we've had so many apparitions of Mary in the last 200 years, and we haven't really talked a lot about the apparitions of Joseph. And yet he's been a part of a number of them. So his prominence in the history of the church making impact that way, private revelation. A lot of more books coming out on St. Joseph. Uh, he has no words in the Bible. There's no recorded word. Uh, there is a verse uh, where it talks about his character. I'm going to share about that in a minute. But a lot of people now, and, and including St. John Vianney Seminary, where I'm the rector, uh, are praying this consecration of St. Joseph, Donald Calloway, and maybe a lot of you are doing it, this sort of 30-day consecration to St. Joseph, kind of like the 30-day to Mary. So all the, S well, most of the SJV seminarians are doing this, this Lent right now. And it's a beautiful way to fall more in love with St. Joseph and to have him uh, a, a tremendous friend, spiritual guide. There's another little book, very accessible by Mark Miravelli from a uh, professor from Steubenville called Meet Your Spiritual Father. And then I just point out another one, The Life of St. Joseph, because it's a private revelation to a sister, an abbess, uh, Maria Baige. 
She lived in the 1700s, Benedictine, and the life of St. Joseph given to her. Now, if you look online to purchase this, it's like 50 bucks, they're gonna rob you, but you can actually get a new copy from the publisher, which is 101 Foundations. So there's a lot of uh, increasing number of books on St. Joseph. And so the living tradition of the church is celebrating him more and more. Now, I went to Spain when I was a young priest, and I love the Carmelites, and I love St. Teresa of Avila. So I went to her place in Avila and others where she started a convent and learned that of the 17 new convents that she rose up, she named 12 of them after St. Joseph. 12 out of 17, San Jose, over and again, San Jose, San Jose, San Jose. So she must have really knew something, his patronage and protection. So if after this talk, one thing you get out of it is you'd like to consecrate yourself to St. Joseph, then this would be a, a really wonderful fruition for you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 says, I'm going to read it for you, St. Joseph, a righteous man. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child with, from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Being a righteous man, being a righteous man. Some translations say a just man. I prefer righteous because I think just actually has a, a more narrow definition or can feel that way. In Greek, the word dikaios or the noun dikaiosine, if we bring that into English, uh, we think about like a verb, an adjective, and a noun, we have all three available to us if we use the word just. A just man is an adjective. We could say justice is a noun. Or we could say he was justified as a verb. You see that there's an adjective, noun, and verb. But when we get to the word righteous, we don't have all three. We don't have a verb in English. But that verb is in Greek. So, a righteous man, adjective, righteousness, a noun, but we don't really have righteous phi. Righteous phi. And this gets into a debate with our Protestant brothers and sisters because um, justification by faith is a big, prominent, you know, theological point that especially Lutherans want to make. And so when we hear that Joseph was a just man, Sometimes it brings in the connotation of this debate. And secondly, the cardinal virtue of justice is a narrow, it's one virtue defined as to give the other what is their, what is their due. To give another what is their due is to, be ju to do, act justly. But Joseph was not just a just man. He, not, he didn't just do acts of justice. Righteousness encompasses all of it. <laughs> All the virtues and holiness. It's like holiness and all the virtues. So when you go home, look up your Bible and ask what Matthew chapter 1 says. Does it say he was a just man or a righteous man? And I'm just going to suggest I think righteous is a better choice. Joseph was a protector. 
he was a protector. So this talk is to be a model for men. Um, certainly men are called to be righteous, are we not? And to be protectors. I, I give you a beautiful insight by a sister, Mother Nadine. She's uh, Miami, Ohio, sisters of the pierced hearts of Jesus and Mary, a, a very wise woman. She was on retreat, and she was praying about the scene where Jesus is standing and a woman caught in adultery is brought forward and they want to stone her to death. And he starts writing in the sand. Do you know the scene? And he stands eventually and says, let the one without sin cast the first stone and they all go away. There's something about Joseph in that scene. This is the beautiful inspiration she received on retreat. How is Joseph in that scene? This is Jesus and a group of right, self-righteous people want to stone a woman to death and this prostitute or this adulteress. And uh, how is Joseph there? Well, she was brought back to Mary's pregnancy. And in the scriptures, it says Joseph did not expose her to the law. He did not want to expose her to the law. Those words, expose her to the law. Because to be pregnant out of wedlock, to have committed adultery, the law said you should be stoned to death. And Joseph didn't want that. In a way, he was protecting her. Now the cloud that could have been in his mind, think about the travail he endured. He knew this young woman was so virtuous, so pure, so beautiful in her faith. And yet she's pregnant, he doesn't know how. The inner turmoil that could materialize from that. And yet he did not want to expose her to the law. That is what Jesus did with the woman caught in adultery. Essentially, He did not expose her to the law. That's what he carried out. The words are not in Scripture right there, but they could have been. And what you see then is the character of Jesus and the character of Joseph parallel. Protectors. And so men are called to imitate Joseph as a protector. Joseph is chaste, chaste. Now, uh, we had a benediction here. I just share a little humorous story, (laughs) funny uh, to me. But when I was in St. Michael, Minnesota, we built a new church and we had a Eucharistic procession from the old historic church to the new church and the community was going down the street. And when we got inside, we had benediction and we prayed the divine praises. And the liturgist of the time, part-time liturgist, um, very attentive to detail, um, but had never been a liturgist before. And she wrote out the divine praises. And when it got to, blessed be St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse, she spelled it C-H-A-S-E-D. Most chaste spouse. And I'm up there practically laughing. No one else knows why. But just so everybody knows, chastity, C-H-A-S-T-E, is how you should spell it, right? 
But I'm up there thinking, who was chasing him? How far were they chasing him? Well, St. Joseph, um, the most chaste man. To be chaste is to have a power, to have self-possession, and to be master of our house. And our, our culture is so inundated with unchastity and immodesty. It's totally swimming upstream. And we need the sport around us to do it. Well, uh, I'd like to, you know, St. Jo Joseph was a virgin in addition to being chaste. Everybody's called to chastity, married people too. Uh, I'd like to read a little quote by St. Bede on Joseph as a virgin. It's the tradition of the church now. There's something called the doubt of Joseph, and there's some people who think, well, Joseph may have had a, had a previous marriage and had children through that marriage. That's one thought, false thought. It's not our Catholic tradition. Okay, St. Bede, here we go. May God grant us to perceive with pious Catholic attitude that the parents of our Redeemer were continually distinguished by unimpaired virginity, and that according to scriptural custom, the brethren of the Lord were named as cousins, not as sons. St. Jerome says, You say that Mary did not remain a virgin. Even more do I claim that Joseph also was virginal, in order that from a virginal marriage a virginal son might be born. He who merited to be called the Father of the Lord remained virginal with Mary. So he is a virgin, and he is chaste. If you're a man who would like to grow more chaste, ask St. Joseph to help you. I had a seminarian once was vesting and kind of pulling up a cassock in the sacristy and so on. And all of a sudden I saw a, a cincture, kind of a white robe around him. And I rope and I said, I said, what's that? He says, this is the cincture, chastity cincture of St. Joseph. Now that was the first I had kind of heard that or seen that on somebody myself, now at the seminary. And here is this young man with this great devotion with a white cincture, if you will, rope around his waist, reminding him underneath his garments, not to be seen by others, but I happened to see it as he was sort of divesting. Anyway, where did this cord of chastity start? 1657. The cincture of St. Joseph an Augustinian nun in Antwerp, Belgium, enjoyed a miraculous cure from a long and serious illness after beginning to wear a cincture in honor of St. Joseph. The devotion of wearing the cincture spread and she became associated with what's called the Arch Confraternity of St. Joseph, whose headquarters are in Rome and the American branch headquarters in De Pere, Wisconsin. De Pere, Wisconsin, close to Green Bay. And so there is a devotion to St. Joseph in chastity, which is a kind of a cord, a kind of cincture that some people wear under their garments to remind them of that. And in our age, which is so impure, so many people abused by unchastity, how much more do we need St. Joseph? How much more? I think uh, St. Joseph was... 
Uh, one more thing about chastity, I like to say this, which I share with my seminarians. It's kind of like an onion and you peel back the layers as you grow in chastity. And so the first thing is to become chaste with regards to images, impure images outside of us and to root out pornography and other things, to get pure with technology. And of course we want to become pure with anybody else and even ourselves externally. And so we're moving inward in purity, first getting rid of external impurities that affect us from the outside and moving interior. So moving interior, we need to remove lust, lust and the propensity to lust, the passion inside of us and our concupiscible appetite that makes us want to look at that woman twice and to say, no, I'm going to fight against that. My motive to look at her twice is not pure. And so we're now moving interior, we're battling more and more interior against the thoughts that stream through our imagination, saying, I will not, I will strive to put those out. I remember, uh, I can share this publicly, uh, a priest that's been at times in my own fraternal group, but at one time he shared out loud, he said, when I'm tempted to lust, this is after years of priesthood, he said, when I'm tempted to lust, an iron door goes down. He says, and God is giving me strength to cut it off. I said, wow, that is awesome inspiration. Brother Priest, share with me. And so uh, beyond that, where does the Lord want to get us? He even wants us to get us to the point where we don't even give in to a silly romantic idea. We don't even entertain a curious romantic idea. And that can sound like, what? You're kidding me. That seems impossible. But that, in fact, is where grace wants to take us. And that's where, that's where everybody is in heaven. So chastity, beginning from the outside, moving in. I encourage you to really fight for it. St. Joseph, help us. Next uh, comment I want to make about St. Joseph is actually discernment of spirits. I, w- I want to say he's a man who discerns spirits. He had dreams. The Lord spoke to him in dreams. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 2 now, verse 22. When Herod died, or starting in verse 19, when Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. Now, has God ever spoken to you in a dream? How many, please raise your hand, ever felt like God spoke to you in a dream? So there's a, a, a dozen or more out there. It's uh, recalled in the scripture a fair bit where God speaks to people through dreams, but it's not like you get the sense like God does it every week. It's almost like, you know, two times in a lifetime or something like that. But how does one discern whether it's God's voice in a dream? We have so much wacky material in our dreams, just crazy material. And then 
I, I mean, I think what I, what I would look for in dreams in a, in a way is we're working out the stuff of our life, we're processing, especially things that impact us emotionally. So I would encourage you to be attentive to what kind of emotions you feel in your dreams, even more than sort of the, what, the, the, what it looks like, the figures, the colors, the shapes, but what, what do you feel like in, in your dreams? And maybe you're, you're working out a lot of fear in your dreams, or maybe you're working out a lot of loneliness in your dreams, or anger in your dreams, or whatever it is, um, and then face that and ask the Lord to help heal what needs to be healed. But if God is going to speak in a dream, what can we say? What discernment principles can we apply to say that was God? That was God. That dream. I'm going to give you four that come from St. Teresa of Avila in her writing in Tyr Castle about locutions. So she says, in later stages of the spiritual life, God will give supernatural phenomena like locutions. If you read her interior, book, Interior Castle, she's got seven sets of mansions, and she says, you know, the seventh mansion is the height of the spiritual life. So she says locutions will start in the sixth set of mansions, the sixth. But she says here, these are four characteristics about locutions that differentiate them, that, that then we know they come from God. Number one, that locution has a kind of power and authority that accompanies it. A kind of power and authority. And so if you're going to have a dream, I would just suggest if God's speaking to you in a dream, you can ask the question, did that feel like there was a power and authority in that, with that dream, with the message in a dream? Number two, she say it will have a spark of certainty. A spark of of certainty, a true locution. Number three, it will produce tranquility in the soul. And number four, it will be remembered for a very long time. And I think those are good to apply to the question of might God speak to me in a dream just as much as God might in a locution. I'll read them again quick. A power and authority accompanies God's voice and word in a locution. A spark of certainty, tranquility in the soul is produced and it's remembered for a very long time. And I think Joseph probably did that. He probably recognized in those dreams, those elements, the power and authority of God accompanying them. A spark of certainty, remembered for a very long time. Tranquility that was God speaking. So he... Uh, he was a man who had a, a gift of discernment of spirits. Now, in the, in, the, in the verses I just read, he was told by God, and an angel threw a dream to go back to Israel, the land of Egypt, land of Israel. And he's planning to do it, but then he has this fear of Archelaus, the son of Herod. And he says, I'm not sure I should go back to that area, Judea. He's discerning. Is that a safe place? Is that a safe place for my family? And chooses instead to go to Galilee, to Nazareth. Now, one of the titles we have for St. Joseph is Terror of what? Do you know this? Terror of Demons. Terror of Demons. Would you be someone that demons would be terrified 
if you didn't know how to discern spirits, if you were not proficient in discerning spirits, would demons be terrified of you? Dear men, if we're going to be like St. Joseph, protectors in our family, valiant, doing spiritual warfare for them, someone that demons would be terrified of, we must become adept at discerning spirits. What does that voice come from? God never speaks discouragement, for example. Discouragement is always of the devil or ourselves, but never God. Satan likes to hit us where we're weak and pummel us over and over again, whether it's fear, whether it's lust, whether it's pride, whatever it is, over and over again, addictions. And we must become adept at discerning. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a list of charisms. And I find it interesting that when it comes to the charism of discernment of spirits, it's often translated discernment of spirits. The first substantive is in the singular, and the second in the plural. Again, discernment, singular, of spirits, plural. But you know what the real Greek says? Discernments of spirits. They're both in the plural. Discernments of spirits. Which shows that that charism is not just something that abides with someone one time and for life, but every time there's a discernment of a spirit, a charism is given to do that. And because we're baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, he want, God wants us to do that. And so there are many discernments of spirits. Now, there can be multiple spirits. Think about Mary Magdalene. She had seven demons in her, right? Did Jesus discern seven demons? I think so. He discerned multiple spirits at one time. How about all the spirits he cast into the pigs? I think it's Matthew 8.30. I used to tell my young seminarians, you got to memorize Matthew 8.30. Very, very important verse. And then they go look it up and they say Matthew 8.30. And Matthew 8.30 says, in the distance a large herd of swine were grazing. <laughs> and they look at me kind of cross-eyed. I'd say it's a very important verse. <laughs> well, Jesus cast all the demons into the pig and the pigs and they ran into the sea. So uh, St. Joseph was a man who, uh, he discerned spirits. He was a courageous and yet meek man. Courageous and yet meek. I want to just share a little bit about the virtue of meekness. Because uh, often we kind of think face value, uh, we think meekness is not really a strength, it's a kind of weakness. Somebody who's meek is like timid. Is somebody who's meek timid? Is a meek man in a family, a meek woman, are they meek because they're timid? No. No, to be meek is to be powerful. And powerful. And this is how, and this is why. Back centuries past, when certain cultures would go to get horses, they would go up into the hills and they'd find the wild stallions and the other horses, and they would capture them, harness them, and bring them down. And they would evaluate those horses 
to discern what was their strength, what was their talent level, how fast could they gallop. And they would assess them and judge them and then assign them to a certain duty in the culture. The ones that were the least talented horses were used in farming, plow, plow in the field. The ones that were somewhat talented, they were used in sports, like chariot races. But the ones that were the most powerful and the most talented, just physically, they would be used in war. And this is how they would be trained. They would be trained so that they were fearlessly galloping right into the enemy's front line and when the rider nudged them, they would stop on a dime. Despite the fact that arrows are flying in all directions, a horse that was courageous enough to run in a total gallop right into the face of the enemy and yet stop at a dime at the rider's command was said to be meeked. That horse was meeked. A meek horse. That is not a timid horse. That is a powerful horse. That is a, such a powerful horse that it's fearless in the face of the enemy and yet it can stand in the midst of great opposition, stand on its feet and not run in fear. And so meekness is defined as strength under control. Now with this definition, men, do you want to be called a meek man? Strength under control? Courage to run in the face of the enemy and yet stop on a dime wherever God would say? Yes, St. Joseph was this. I, uh, I have a prayer that I say myself. I've been doing it now for about two and a half years. And uh, it comes from the Novena to St. Joseph. A, a woman emailed me and she said, I'm praying a Novena to St. Joseph for you. And I thought to myself, you're praying a Novena to St. Joseph for me? Like, I've never prayed a Novena to St. Joseph. This is two and a half years ago. And I thought to myself, you know, I might have asked his prayers here and there, but I've never prayed a full novena. So I said, I, I better do that too. <laughs> so I prayed a novena, and afterwards I thought, I want to do this every day. Not the full novena, but at least a prayer to St. Joseph every day. And so I took the prayer of St. Joseph, and that's in kind of each day of the novena, and, and the striking words that are part of that prayer which have really hit me are praying for the grace to have, like St. Joseph, a chaste, charitable, humble mind. I had never heard those words predicated of mind. I've always heard them predicated of heart. But a chaste, charitable, humble mind. You know, I prayed that prayer for a year, and I told my seminarians, I said, you know what? My devotion was lacking. 
And for some reason, I can't explain, but today, I love St. Joseph. I didn't really know him a year ago, but today I love him. And if you will pray, whatever patron saint it will be, once a day, I guarantee after a year, you will be able to say, I love St. Joseph, or I love St. Teresa, or I love St. Jude. It's a mystery how friendship with heavenly souls materializes, but it does. And you will can testify, I'm sure many of you can testify it already in various ways. And so I uh, invite you to think about the meekness of St. Joseph because that's a power, which is a great power to accompany discernment of spirits. Now, I just want to say one final thing about St. Joseph and then wrap up. There's a kind of a growing belief various places. Actually, it started with many saints in past centuries that St. Joseph was assumed into heaven. St. Joseph assumed into heaven, like the Blessed Virgin Mary was assumed into heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven. Mary was assumed into heaven. Well, there's actually a number of saints that believe St. Joseph was assumed into heaven. For example, St. Francis de Sales. St. Bernardine of Siena, Francisco Suarez, and St. Pope John XXIII in the 1960 homily refers to the pious belief of Joseph's assumption. Pope John XXIII, Saint, 1960 homily. In the book that I mentioned, uh, sort of the revelations of Joseph's life to Sister Maria Baige, uh, you can get it online for $10 uh, through 101 Foundation. Online, 50 bucks because you can't get it unless you contact them directly. But she has a very interesting uh, comment in the end, last, towards the end of the chapters. She says, in the book of Matthew, when Jesus dies on the cross, this is only in Matthew's account, it says there's an earthquake and the tombs of the saints are opened, and after he rises, they come out and enter into the city, and they appear to many. That's what the Matthew text, chapter 21, says. At Jesus' death on the cross, right there when he dies on the cross, there's an earthquake. And with that earthquake, the tombs of many saints are opened. After he rises, they come into the city and appear to many. She says, St. Joseph was one of those. She says, St. Joseph was one of those graves opened with the earthquake. And he came into the city and was assumed into heaven, body and soul. There's some Old Testament figures um, which seem to imply that other people could be there, assumed body in heaven too. Think about Enoch, who just walked with God and then was taken. Melchizedek, who had no sort of beginning or end, although many church fathers think that was Shem, son of Noah. And then there's uh, Elijah, went up in a fiery chariot, whirlwind. Maybe even Moses. In the, in the New Testament, the book of Jude, it says that uh, Michael the archangel wrestled about the body of Moses. 
Why would they risk about the body of Moses if it was decomposed? In any case, was Joseph assumed into heaven? Maybe. Maybe he was. I like to think so. By Jesus' power. By the power of Christ Jesus. And so, uh, in this first opening talk, I'm honored to give it, and especially to a man that I've been falling in love with for the last two and a half years in a big way. Uh, just repeat, I think Joseph is a righteous man. That includes every virtue and holiness. He is a true protector of his family, even as a priest wants to be of the church, his bride. A chaste man, virgin, a chaste man. A chaste man is a man who has self-possession. He is the master of his house. He is a man who was, uh, had the gift of discernment of spirits. And so he could wage war, spiritual warfare, with meekness and courage. May he be a beautiful patron, a powerful patron for you as well. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever.